Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Sean Harding, a leading authority in cardiac science and emeritus professor of cardiac pharmacology in Imperial College, London. She was special advisor to the House of Commons Science and Technology Select Committee on Regenerative Medicine and has been awarded the Imperial College Medal and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the European Society of Cardiology. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss her new book, The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart. Sean Harding, welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's a great honor. Uh, Sean, how long you have been doing research on this exquisite machine, the heart? Oh, well, about 40 years, in fact. So um, uh, a considerable time. I've learned a, a couple of things, I hope. <laughs> okay. Uh, in this book, there is much more than a couple of things uh, and, 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 and very fascinating topics. So let, let's start from the very beginning. How did our present understanding of the heart develop over time that this is not uh, just a pump? It is much more than uh, just a pump. Um, I think that uh, it, it, it even took a little while to find out that it was a pump. I mean, first that it was thought that it was the, the fire that warmed your chest and, and things like that. And so um, uh, the, the, the idea that it was a pump when you have the technology as a sort of analogy, you can see what's happening. And so William Harvey was able to see that it was pumping the blood. But uh, And I think even he appreciated that the electrical activity within the heart, um, but the, the appreciation of the, the structure, the evolution of the heart, and uh, the idea that, um, that there, there's some feedback between the heart and, and the brain, uh, I think these are new things that that, um, that have evolved with time over the the time that I've been working, and the 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 understanding of the regeneration of the heart has taken a long, long time to work out. There has been huge arguments for many years about this, and I think we're only just understanding first whether there's any rege regeneration at all, and there's a little, and why there is so little, because it's, it's a strange thing, really, that um, your hair will grow, you know, whether you want it or not, in places you don't even want it, and um, uh, your liver, your uh, very many other organs will, will regenerate. But the heart, which is so important, which you only have one of, uh, really doesn't do that. So uh, that's been a very interesting journey. And, and you um, talk about uh, stem cell research uh, in, in this context. Uh, it's a fascinating area. It's a promising area. Uh, first of all, remind our listeners that what are stem cells? And then we will discuss that. Uh, can we create cardiac stem cells and maybe maybe regenerate damaged part of uh, our heart? So let us start with this. Uh, what are stem cells? It's a cell that really hasn't committed to be any specific organ yet. And, and so there are some cells obviously within the embryo that, that are like this because they're the ones that then create all the organs. Those are the embryonic stem cells. And actually you can, the they're uh, about 
10 days after fertilization of the egg, there's this tiny ma uh, mass, the inner cell mass, that if you dissect it out, it, they, the cells will grow indefinitely, and, and a bit like cancer cells almost, and, and they will just keep re reproducing very uh, strongly until they're given the cues that we learn from developmental biology to push them into one organ or the other. They can, they can, uh, they're pluripotent, so they can make all the organs of the body except the placenta, uh, um, but uh, they're not totipotent. That's the fertilized egg is the totipotent one. It can make a whole baby, a whole organized baby. Um, the, the embryonic stem cells can make this very interesting uh, uh, sort of tumor um, and it's one of the ways you find out whether they are properly uh, stem cells, which is called a teratoma. And it's really like a disorganized baby. Um, it has hair and teeth and bones and things like that, a rather gruesome thing. Not actually terribly dangerous, but nevertheless, not so, something you completely want. So you, you have to be careful about stem cells. And we perhaps we'll come back to that later. When they're undifferentiated, they can grow in this way, this sort of uh, very aggressive way. Now, there are other stem cells in the body. They're, these are the adult stem cells. And, and so, you know, the things like from your skin. And so there are stem cells below your skin. So when your skin is injured, they rise to the surface and they repair. Or in your gut, there are stem cells that are continuously repairing your gut and, and your liver. So there are adult stem cells and they can reproduce when they're in uh, this, this early form. But and they have a very limited regenerative capacity. So the uh, liver cells can only make liver, but the blood cells can make a number of different uh, ones. So the red blood cells, the white blood cells, platelets, etc. So they, the, um, and uh, whether the heart um, had any stem cells of its own, some, some endogenous stem cells, has just been the most huge argument with, um, you know, reputations won and lost, that kind of thing. In your lab, and you discuss this in the book also, you have created cardiac stem cells. And then using these cardiac stem cells, you have actually grown something i don't know what technical word should i use here but you can use the technical word later <laughs> right. on yes um yes so, so this is uh, so embryonic stem cells we learned a lot from those but um, but there was various worries about the ethics of using something that could have been an, uh, uh, grown to be a baby usually they were discarded after a vitro fertilization the parents preferred this option to having them just destroyed. They thought that something might, good might come out of it. But nevertheless, there's a lot of argument about it. In the United States, uh, various presidents, as they come in, well, I have, have said, yes, we can have those federally funded or we can't. They're always overturning the, their, each other's verdict, as with many things. Um, and, and so uh, that was a bit of a problem uh, but the, the real breakthrough was uh, by Shinya Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize just over 10 years ago, uh, for uh, understanding how to make any cell in your body that grows reasonably well, like your skin or, or um, blood, some blood cells or some cells you can harvest from urine, really. Um, the, if it grows well in a dish, you can reprogram it back to being that kind of uncommitted cell. And um, uh, then you can use it in the same way as the embryonic stem cell. So from you, for example, we could take a, a, um, 
he'd use skin first. We could take a, a small amount of skin, a little biopsy, grow it in the dish and it'll grow up, turn it into uh, the induced pluripotent stem cells. And then uh, if we would want to make it into heart cells and we, we can do that. Uh, we have very good preparations for doing that now. I mean, it's, it's what's has really developed over the last sort of five or, or 10 years is a way to do that. And because many labs in the world were using this, they there was a big concerted effort, partly uh, because of wanting to move away from the embryonic stem cells, but partly because they, you know, they these cells have the potential because they are genetically matched to you to so that we could give them back to you without them being rejected. Whether that's going to happen is another matter, but there's there's a couple of things that might stop that. But that's the that's the holy grail there that we could uh, you've got your own you can grow your own heart back again as it were outside your body. So um, because of that everybody put a huge amount of effort into this and we started off when we first looked at them you would you would look down at a, a, a dish uh, down the microscope and you'd see perhaps one or two little tiny patches of beating if you were very uh, you know lucky um, but then by refining the techniques and by moving from things like growth factors, which have to be purified from blood, um, which can be have batch variability, which can be a little bit chancy, to using small molecules to very precisely turn on and turn off the developmental pathways at particular times, then it became much more robust. And now even in just a fairly ordinary laboratory like mine, you, you can uh, make, uh, you have big spinner flasks and you can make uh, uh, 100 million or so cells at a time. Really only as, I could do more if we could afford it. That's, it's really the cost of the, the ingredients uh, that can do it. And, and so you can t make um, enough cells to uh, put, and so then we go to making what you're talking about, which is engineered heart tissue. I mean, there are various ways that people talk about this, but engineered heart tissue is, is a common one. And so what we do for that is we, we basically put them in a gel matrix, the cells, and we use uh, thrombin, which is like blood clotting uh, um, matrix. And you then trigger it to sort of pull the things together, like as it were in a blood clot. And the cells, as they approach each other, they will make connections. And so at first, you just see this sheet of cells with just a few tiny wiggly movements, you know, in, in taking up the whole of your dish, tiny wiggly movements. And then over the, the days, they get stronger and, and they get more coordinated. One interesting thing about these cells is they have their own pacemaker. Now, in your heart, you have some cells that have a pacemaker, they're the pacemaker, and then a lot of the rest of your cells are quiescent. Um, they, they don't uh, beat until the pacemaker tells them to. But these are very young cells, they're like embryonic, and, and they have this pacemaker, so you can see them beat all at once. And then what we've done after that is to take them and uh, ha uh, hang them, or actually we do it at the same time. We, we let them grow around some bendy rods, some bendy silicon rods. And as they then start to beat together, they pull these rods 
and uh, to, in, inwards, and then they relax again after they've, they've uh, relaxed in their beat. And so they kind of exercise like dumbbells against these. And so the beating gets stronger and stronger and they get more and more like uh, adult cells, although they're not they still don't get quite like adult cells. And so uh, this, so you now have a beating uh, patch and, and the ones we made uh, in, our, in the laboratory were about the size of my thumb or a, a, a elastoplast or something like that. Um, and they were meant, uh, which was we did, was we put them onto a rabbit heart uh, to see if we could uh, um, fix that. And um, uh, the ones that have gone into some very early clinical trials are much larger. Uh, there's some that uh, perhaps the size of your palm of your hand, and they've got uh, probably around half a billion cells in. And, and that is sort of getting very close to what you'd lose in a heart attack. So you'd lose perhaps uh, up to two billion cells from your ventricle in a heart attack. So you're getting close to something that's quite useful there. An important point perhaps to mention here is that when we get a heart attack, some parts of uh, the heart are permanently damaged. And if this technology works, so maybe in future, uh, either we can implant those parts of the heart or maybe maybe we can regenerate them. So, so this technology can do a, a lot of good for us. That's right. Um, and the the initial trials have started. Um, there's some in Germany and there's some in Japan. And in the uh, August issue of Nature, there was uh, reports from the Japanese people that showed initial safety, which is important, and of course, uh, and uh, and some hint of benefit. But they were only small trials, so I just have to to. Uh, sort of uh, you know put that out there that you do for for the for a start with cardiac trials now but if you're looking at a drug you probably need thousands of people to really understand whether it's working or not so we are at the beginning of our our journey with this technology a quick note uh, for the listeners uh, this is the point in our podcast where we adjusted the position of uh, professor harding's uh, microphone so the audio uh, that you will hear from uh, this point on uh, will be slightly different uh, when you outline uh, cutting edge research in the field of uh, cardiac science uh, you discuss the importance of uh, various techniques that are based on big data, the techniques that use machine learning, artificial intelligence. And you say in the book that these techniques have revolutionized how we conduct research on heart and many other uh, topics also. So give us a little bit uh, uh, of this, that how these techniques are helping us to perform uh, better research. Well, if we, if we simply start with something like big data, even the fact that we've got very large numbers of, of patients or subjects is extremely useful for pinning down some of the techniques and, and the conclusions that we have. Um, uh, they, uh, things like UK Biobank, which has got half a million people, they're very, very well studied. And you can dip in and um, do uh, almost clinical trials in silico on, on these patients. When we had COVID, for example, the understanding of um, from the biobank about who uh, was getting COVID and the fact that people with 
heart conditions were doing much worse with COVID. You know, those those kind of things emerge very quickly. Um, where the, whereas, if you were just relying on uh, reports from doctors in in hospitals around the place. Um, then that that would take a much longer time to emerge, and and also things that 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 um, you know that uh, about the vaccines. The, there was some idea that the vaccines might cause heart attacks, but actually that's really a statistical anomaly that that people heart attacks are not infrequent, and so. Uh, there would have been a reasonable number of people who'd had the vaccine who would have a heart attack and, and it was just by chance. And so the big data allowed us to, um, you know, scotch that rumour very, very quickly. Um, so so big data is one thing. Um, but then uh, we, uh, one of the things we've been uh, looking at much more is how to analyse this and when you have these very large data sets, it's difficult uh, to, to sometimes to pull out everything that you'd like to do. And so using artificial intelligence and machine learning has also been very helpful. Um, one uh, interesting um, observation was that there was a, a very common mutation that was associated very strongly with a dilated cardiomyopathy. About 25% of people who had this kind of dilated cardiomyopathy had this mutation. But then when they looked at uh, a cohort of 2,000 apparently healthy people, about 1% of them had this mutation as well. So they didn't appear to have heart disease. So what was going on? And, and they've taken the uh, cine recordings of the heart movement from these patients and uh, with artificial intelligence, just letting the, um, the, mach the machine uh, work out itself what patterns are associated with the mutation, what patterns are not, they've been able to show subtle changes in the wall of the heart and the movement of the wall of the heart that's that's produced by this mutation, even in people who uh, uh, have, have uh, no sign of heart disease. And we know that some of these people, if they have a second hit, are much more likely to develop heart disease if they have even normal amounts of alcohol or uh, after pregnancy or with chemotherapy. And so it's really important to understand um, who might be at risk and who might not be. Plasticity is a concept that uh, we usually associate with the brain and its ability to rewire itself to manage uh, any damage or other changes. You use the term plastic heart while explaining the resilience of our heart. Yes, of course, um, it really, in a sense, follows. Um, because like the, the brain, the heart has very little turnover. You're going to have, um, uh, so it's about 1% per year. So you, you'll have 50% of the cells will be with you from birth until death, if you know, 90, 100. And so those cells will um, be beating away, but they have many challenges uh, to overcome. Pregnancy is one of them. You know, your blood volume, your, your volume your, is, is doubling at, at some points, um, uh, not to mention the, the work it has to do during labor and birth. So that's huge stress on the heart. And, and uh, then high blood pressure also, the heart adapts to, to that. And so the, um, the cells change. 
change by um, either moving relative to one another. So, for example, when I talked about dilated cardiomyopathy, what's happened there is the heart has become big and baggy. And that is an adaptation because now, even if it's contracting weakly, because it's got a lot of blood in it, each beat will have enough blood for you. So, so it's, uh, that's an adaptation. The walls can get thicker as well if, if you, they're trying to push uh, against the load of high blood pressure into your heart. So it's pushing against a high pressure. So the walls will get thicker. Um, and the, the individual cells do this. They um, move relative to each other or they, they become individually thicker or thinner and, uh, or longer. And, and so uh, you can you can uh, see that in the when you tease apart the heart and you look at the individual muscle cells or cardiomyocytes as we as we call them, um, they, these are the tiny cells. They will beat like little hearts in a dish. You can see by the thickness uh, whether they've been under load or not. And, and so that's the plasticity that the kind of plasticity we're talking about. And so same again if you they. Um, if they uh, the load is taken away, they will they will quickly within days to weeks go back to the the normal or even atrophy if if they don't have enough load to, to work against. Uh, there's a there's a, an interesting um, uh, operation that's been done uh, where uh, at the beginning when they were looking at transplants, sometimes the hearts the donor hearts that were there to replace the failing heart. Sometimes they weren't quite enough, they were too small or something like that. And so instead of putting them, uh, replacing the heart, they put them in as well. And they plumbed them into the um, uh, abdominal aorta so that, uh, that they could also contribute to, to the heartbeat. But because they weren't under such, such load as the ordinary heart, they tended to atrophy over with, with time. So, you know, the heart can, can change very, very quickly that way. And you say that there is an entire separate nervous system that ensures that the heart responds to changing needs, uh, such as level of protein? Um, uh, yes. So the the um, system is called the autonomic nervous system. And it, it doesn't just control the heart. It, it controls all the things you don't have to think about. That's why it's autonomic or like autonomous. And, and so uh, obviously... Um, uh, in fact, your heart beats, of course, it, it, it beats spontaneously. If you, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I have to go to the operating theatre to, to uh, uh, when I want to take a sample of the failing heart that's been taken out when they're putting a donor heart in. And so they often leave this, this failing heart on the side, ready to, to be dissected. You can see it beating away. It's out, outside the body, but it's got this spontaneous beating. And we take hearts back to the, the laboratory or we use our, our other systems and we can perfuse them. We can put uh, liquids through them to keep them alive and they will beat on the, on the rig without uh, any, any help from us, as it were. Um, and so, so the heart itself can, can carry on beating. But what happens is this, the rate of beating and the strength of beating is controlled. Um, and this is the same system that controls your gut, your digestion, your lungs, etc. cetera. Uh, it, 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 uh, um, uh, sort of fine tunes everything. So you don't have to think about it. Obviously, if you had to think about making your heart beat, you know, 60 times a minute, that would be a bit time consuming. Um, so, um, uh, the, the, there are two sides to this, like an accelerator and a brake. So the sympathetic nervous system, uh, 
uh, accelerates everything. It's what they call the fight and flight system. So if you're being chased or, or whatever, or you're frightened or something like that, it will speed up your heart. It will divert the blood from your, from your gut and from your skin. It will divert it to your muscles to run away and to your heart. Um, and it will slow up digestion, etc. And so you can, you can concentrate on running away. Um, and there's that. And then there's the parasympathetic, which whenever, whenever you're relaxing again, um, then it will calm everything down and your digestion will continue um, and your heart will calm down again. So the parasympathetic system. So those two are the systems that fine tune what's happening with the heart. This nicely brings us to my next question. In the book, you explore the relation between the emotions and heart function. And you say that the heart not only responds to our emotions, but creates them as well. Uh, let us dig deep on this point. Uh, our heart creates emotions as well? Yes, or creates, yes, uh, and, and amplifies our emotions. So, for example, um, uh, if, you, if you hear, if you can feel your heart racing, it kind of it makes you more frightened. So, in fact, what you can do is play somebody a racing heart, the noise of a racing heart, and tell them it's their heart. And that will create a panic attack. Um, uh, and there's a fascinating, wonderful experiment. It'll take a little while to explain. So, um, when you're, you've got the, as your heart beats, so you, it contracts, it expels the blood, and that's it's working the hardest, then it relaxes again in, in order to fill with blood. And so it, that's called systole when it's pumping it out and diastole when it's, uh, when it's relaxing. And there's a, a, a thing called a baroreceptor that senses that, um, senses the pressure that, that's coming out of that. And if you show, if you flash uh, frightened, well, frightened faces um, at the, somebody, it, it frightens them. We're very social kind of animals. And so if we see a frightened face, we will automatically get a frightened reaction. And, and so if you flash that image very rapidly at the, uh, when the heart is pumping very strongly, it's at the top of its beat, then they will be, you'll get a bigger fear response. Um, and you can tell that from the skin resistance and things like that. Then if you do it at the, when your heart's relaxed and that's just within one heartbeat. So that's, you know, one sixtieth, uh, of, of, you know, of just a second or so that the, the beginning or the end of that. And that, uh, can make that huge difference. So, uh, that in, in, uh, sort of in ordinary life, you, you kind of, um, you're feeling your heart race. And so when you're having a panic attack, if, if you can, reduce your heart rate somehow by, and there's various ways you can do this. You can, that, that kind of meditative breathing is one of those things that helps you, uh, you know, when you uh, inhale and then stop and then exhale very slowly, that, that uh, activates your parasympathetic system. Uh, you can massage your vagus nerve and there's the vagus uh, nerve is running around and through the ear, so ear massage, and there are things you can you can look up about that. That can act activate your parasympathetic system and reduce that. Um, even there's a thing called the diving reflex, where you uh, plunge your face just into a bowl of cold water, 
And, and that's from uh, our originals kind of uh, time swimming. And that slows your, your heart rate down. And so if you do that, you can you kind of short circuit a panic attack. Um, uh, there are some drugs called beta blockers, which block adrenaline. Which adrenaline is the, the, the transmitter that comes out of the nerves in, in the uh, sympathetic system, which stimulates your heart. And, and adrenaline will speed up your heart rate. And there are drugs called beta blockers, which will stop that adrenaline. It stops it working. And it, it's been um, shown that some people uh, become absolutely fearless when they're on a, when they're on uh, beta blockers. That it that it sort of short circuits this kind of uh, sort of amplification. So you've got that on a kind of day to day level, and then you've got. Um, uh, the uh, other thing that I talk about in the book, which is broken heart syndrome. Um, and this is a much more extreme case. And so this is uh, when uh, and you, you see it in the press. I'm always getting calls to go and, uh, you know, go to the, um, so the, pre- the so on TV or something because somebody has died within a short time of their spouse dying or their child dying. Um, the one that people might remember, fairly recent, you know, for a few years ago was um, Carrie Fisher dying and then her mother, Debbie Reynolds, dying soon after that. And then there's, um, uh, you know, there, there was actually one, one of the shootings very recently. Uh, the husband died because oh, his wife was shot, a uh, teacher at the school. So um, uh, that's, uh, that's a real, very real phenomenon. And uh, the statistically, you are more likely to die in the time periods very soon after your spouse dies than at any other time. Um, uh, you know, say, say in in the in the ne- that week or that year. It, so there's a very high uh, chance just after that, and then that kind of drops uh, over about six months till it becomes fairly equal and so um yes and that is 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 adrenaline and and what's happening there well there's there i just want to tell you about two different kinds of broken heart syndrome so that one where people drop dead basically is um sudden cardiac death and what's happening there is the heart is going into fibrillation uh it this is a kind of very extreme rhythm disturbance where it, it where it's called a bag of worms appearance when you look at it because it's just wriggling. And so it's not really expelling blood. And and so you immediately lose consciousness, drop to the ground. And if you're not defibrillated very quickly, then uh, you really only have four minutes before, uh, you know, that's it. Um, And and so uh, adrenaline is um, uh, the the key here. It's, It's causing this very strong rhythm disturbance. And you might ask uh, why um, uh, something, you know, that's a natural thing uh, for running away, etc., cetera, uh, is, is causing this. And um, it's, it's really a question of the evolutionary balance. So, uh, you know, if you've got the fight or flight response, you're overstimulating your heart tremendously, but it's worth it because you're getting away from the saber-toothed tiger. And so for the, you know, perhaps one or two of you might uh, drop dead, but most of you are going to 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 escape, and that's from an evolutionary point of view, that's fine. You can take that small risk, or evolution will accept, in a sense, that small risk it, it to to for the survival of the species. So that's that's basically it. Your 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 heart is being overstimulated. 
Um, but uh, there, there is uh, this, this second disease called Takotsubu syndrome, which is also broken heart syndrome. Um, so Takotsubu syndrome is um, a, a disease that's particularly associated with um, postmenopausal women. Now, um, broke, uh, the, the sudden cardiac death tends to be uh, like many heart diseases, but actually possibly even more than heart attacks. It's, it's more male biased. So probably 80% of the people who have sudden cardiac death uh, will be male. Um, interestingly, I, I, I've talked about bereavement, but I should also mention things like arguments are very strong stimulus, uh, physical exertion too, extreme physical exertion as well. It's, it's, it's very much the same kind of thing. Uh, the adrenaline is, is released in a way the same for emotional and physical stimuli. Um, football. Football is a very strong stimulus for heart disease. It, the, in, in the World Cup final, you get, a, and this happens with many different cardi- football events, 30% increase in um, cardiac disease in the two days following that, uh, especially penalty shootouts. Really particularly stressful. That's not playing football. That's watching football. I have to just emphasize that. Anyway, just turning back to the Takotsubu syndrome, this was uh, discovered not that long ago, actually, probably about 2000. Um, and it's, uh, it, again, during natural disasters, that's, again, you get a lot of heart, heart attacks and, and sudden cardiac death uh, because of the stress. And um, the, uh, the, the people coming into hospital in Japan uh, were they were seeing this, but they were seeing another kind of thing where there were women coming in, men and women, it was about 80% women, this one, uh, often postmenopausal, having what they thought was a heart attack. They were having all the signs of the heart attack. They were having um, uh, the ECG changes, having the pain, etc. But when they looked, they couldn't see any blockages in, in the blood vessels. So they probably weren't having a heart attack. But what they could see, because they used a new kind of imaging where you can look at the whole of the ventricle together, whole of the heart, and they saw the heart was behaving in a very odd way that part of it at the top was contracting very, very strongly, but the rest of it was kind of paralyzed. And so what people had was heart failure, that their heart really wasn't working very well. And and so they didn't really know what to do about this. In fact, the test you you often give, called the dobutamine stress test, actually can make it worse because it, it's a bit like adrenaline. Um, and so they were just not knowing what to do, so being you know, supportive, uh, giving supportive therapies. And, and often uh, there was, no, there was a, a mortality, I have to tell you, it was about 5%. But uh, uh, many of the other women just recovered spontaneously, walked out of the hospital absolutely fine and, and just went home. Some people had recurrences, um, there's some people may have had some uh, some bit of a lingering effect, but nevertheless, they 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 if you had a chronic heart failure, this would never happen. So this is a very strange phenomenon. And of course, the thing is, this was very specifically this imaging that showed this. And so often people will come into hospital saying, "I think I'm having a heart attack," and and, and then they they're not, and they recover it and they go home. So they must have been having this. We just we just don't know what was happening before because we just weren't looking for it. 
Anyway, it was called Takatsubu because it, they thought the heart looked like the octopus pot, the, the pot that they um, use to, to uh, catch the octopuses. So that's why it's got that name. Um, and so this is really interesting. Uh, and we did a lot of studies on this, uh, why, uh, why it should be postmenopausal. Uh, and it's definitely, definitely, estrogen is definitely uh, anti-arrhythmic. It definitely damps down rhythm disturbances in the heart. So we, we were able to see that. And we actually were, were able to work out the, the pathways. And what was happening was when you get extremely high adrenaline, it can switch over to a different pathway. So it's not stimulating the heart anymore. It's kind of shutting it down. Um, uh, so it really goes into an opposite type of effect, which is very strange. And so we worked out, and with various other laboratories, we worked out what pathways, what molecular pathways were, were doing this. And we thought, that's great. We had some rats, which we had anesthetized. This was our model. And we would give them the, uh, a dose, one dose, one shot of adrenaline. And, and you could see the Takatsubu syndrome developing, uh, while they were under the anesthetic. We gave them about the same amount you'd, you'd proportionately for a rat. Um, that you'd have from an EpiPen, which is which is another thing that can trigger these these kind of syndromes, and um, so we could see that. And so we had this model, and so we put in the blockers to the pathways that we worked out, and it worked. And they 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 stopped having this Takatsubu. But what they then had was sudden cardiac death. They they suddenly developed these arrhythmias. And, and so our, our, what we were thinking now, we're thinking now is that what these postmenopausal women have are the, um, the sort of an aborted sudden death sy- syndrome. They could have died from this, but this shutting, this temporary shutting down of their heart, although it, it brought them into hospital, in fact, was, was attempting to protect them. Thank you very much for this very thorough detail. So it means that when we say that uh, somebody has a broken heart and are not living their life as they should be living, so th- there is some truth to that statement. It's it's uh, when you think about people who are have had a breakup and they're very sad after the breakup. Um, it's possible that some of this was, if it was very sudden or unexpected, that some of this could be due to this particular broken heart thing. I think the longer syndromes where you're just very sad and, and broken hearted for, for a while, that's probably more to do with the longer term uh, uh, hormones like cortisol and, and, and things like that. But it's certainly um, a, a, a physical type. There's certainly a physical component to this. Just staying with this for a few more moments, this whole idea that we read in poetry, in literature, uh, that my heart desired this thing, my my heart wants a relationship or something. So it means there is some truth in that as well. Well, well, perhaps <laughs> we, we shouldn't get push this too far. We shouldn't push this too far. You know, the brain is the one that's doing the, the, the heavy lifting here. But, um, you know, they, they, you can't discount the heart completely. I talked about poetry at the beginning of the book and I have the E.E. E. Cummings quote, I carry your heart with me, I carry it in my heart. But nevertheless, we have to be you know, a little more uh, scientific at some points. You have briefly touched upon this, very briefly, but I just want to come back to this uh, point that in the book, you discuss 
gender in the context of heart why we should discuss gender in the context of heart um there's a, a great deal of of activity at the moment in generally speaking in in the large cardiological societies because it's becoming very clear that uh, women are not treated uh, as they should be right in terms of heart disease now um of course it it, it is true that the particularly younger women have less uh, they're less likely to get a heart attack than men uh but actually um it it's is somewhat less it, but you know they're perhaps so say for for every if you're talking about young women sort of 30 or so for for those you for every 10 man men that might have a heart attack you're looking at perhaps three women or five women depending on which particular age group you're in and when you get up to uh, postmenopausal then it evens up and over the life course uh, about 21% of women will die of cardiac disease uh, compared to 24% of men so it's really not as as uneven as as all that and so what's been happening is that um that women have 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 been discounted uh, when they come in with um a heart attack or with symptoms of a heart attack people are saying no no it can't be that sending them home with indigestion tablets and so paramedics won't take them to hospital if they, they with with the same symptoms that a man might have and and so i try to pick apart what's happening here in the book and again big data this is one place where big data is very very useful because um uh you know you've got anecdotal things about women coming in saying they weren't believed etc um but uh you know the or or they've gone home and and haven't realized or they don't even know themselves that they're having a heart attack but the big data has uh, shown us a lot and really drilled down on this so one study i i talk about had 1.3 million heart attacks were studied in in a in a particular hospital and what they were saying what they found was that uh, a woman was um more than twice as likely to uh a a, a so come and, and die from a heart attack that then the man were coming in with a heart attack and what they found was it was a, if that was a male doctor and that was really uh worrying and if you if they were seen by a female doctor twice as likely to survive they they had quite equal equal chance of surviving and even having a female doctor on the team was was able to help that and so um uh, drilling down um uh you know we i i think about what you know excuses are made and one of them is that heart attacks are unexpected because so i say they're not that rare and and then they say the symptoms are different but they're not that different they really aren't that different there's there's a whole range of symptoms you can get for a heart attack and you've got the classic one with the chest pain and then radiating to the jaw or down your arm feeling sweaty feeling anxious feeling nauseous and and so you've got those and and then you've got some other ones like extreme tiredness or back more back pain and things like that so so there are minor differences between men and women about what about those symptoms but not that much and uh, and really not enough to explain that and what it it's uh, what it seems to to be is simply that the male female interaction that they that women when they are come in for with any and this has been shown for many different types of pain are not really taken seriously um their 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 pain is kind of discounted i mean i this is just my what i think but i always think 
when they ask you how bad your pain is, they say, let's think of the worst pain, which is childbirth, or, you know, what is on a scale like that? Okay, well, why aren't they treating the pain of childbirth if it's the worst possible pain you could ever have? So, um, but they, um, they, uh, so women are, 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 they're just discounted. And one of the uh, interesting things was it was not uh, so much sex, but gender. That is the way you were behaving. And so there's a, I, I point out, there's an online test you can do for how male or female you are. Um, and there's, there's, you know, uh, things, there's your, whether you're very assertive, whether you're very shy, whether you're very compassionate, all those things that are supposed to be stereotypically uh, associated with one sex or the other, but also whether you're um, the main wage earner, whether you're the main carer, all those things uh, associate, uh, give, you, give you a kind of uh, gender feeling to, uh, the, about you, so where you, how gendered you are. And they were showing that it was the either male or female who had a high female gender score that were doing badly in, in this interaction with the, the doctors. And, and people who, um, uh, it acts with, for race as well, people who may come from a culture that's very de demonstrative and that's, they're, they're making a big fuss about their pain. The more fuss you make, the less you're believed because it's hysteria and, and I, I quote this great book called Sex Matters by Alison McGregor. And, and she says, the best thing you can do is uh, to, uh, if you want to be believed, bring a man with you to explain. <laughs> um, and um, uh, one, one, then drilling down even further, you say, well, why, in fact, um, uh, aren't, aren't there gender equal teams on the, on the, for cardiology? And the cardiology is a very male profession. That that uh, you know about in in my big university hospital, about ten percent of the uh, male uh, cardiologists, particularly the interventional cardiologists who do the heart attack things, about ten percent were women, uh, and so the rest were men. And um, so they they it's it's like surgery, very classically being a, a kind of male profession. Um, and again, there's a great, great story from the other book I was mentioning, which is that uh, she, she went to um, a top, she was uh, uh, directing an institute about gender studies and things. She went to visit a top US university and they said, oh, we'll take you to our simulation lab. And this is a place where um, they have dummies that have injuries or diseases or something like that. And so people can, medical students can practice on them. And so she went into this new simulation lab. It was not, it was a very recent thing, this. And she went in and she saw that all the dummies were male. Uh, they, the, the, the dummy for pregnancy was a male dummy with a wig on, a blonde wig, and a womb put, put next to it, a uterus and, and baby put next to it. So uh, you can see that, uh, you know, there's, there's some systematic uh, training requirements there. Interesting stuff. Very interesting. Moving on to mechanical hearts, we use different uh, mechanical and electronic devices to assist the functioning of heart. How do you see the present research in that field and how do you see that research evolving in future? So there's been um, some successes, but a notable absence is a complete artificial heart um, or 
a good complete artificial heart. There have been various times, ones that have worked, but not for very long and with very damaging side effects. And, and they started uh, to look for uh, like a, an artificial heart um, before before they had transplants, actually. The, um, it was around the time of the moonshot in the, in the 1960s, uh, and so they, you know, John, uh, um, President Kennedy announced that, and uh, the they was they were persuaded to also have a, a kind of moonshot to get a, a functioning artificial heart, and so it's been up from then. Just think of all the things we've had in terms of going to the moon, even with a, the bit of a lull in the middle. Um, we, you know, the, the latest things, the space station, the Mars probe. Just, just think of all those things we've had. But we have not had a, a truly working, off-the-shelf artificial heart that people can have. Um, and that's because the, the, the engineering is so te- challenging. I, I you know, equate the number of heartbeats we have. So three billion heartbeats in a lifetime. So your, your washing machine will be having to do 10 washes a day for a thousand years to, to, to do the same kind of thing. So, you know, we just don't have the, that technology. Um, for example, your, your left side of your right heart, which pushes the part, the blood around the body, um, has to match the right side of your heart, which then circulates it around the lungs. So they both have to give out exactly the same amount as your heart beats. Otherwise, if you if they were even out by a teaspoon, by the end of the day, that would be something like uh, 500 litres of blood difference. So that's just, you know, ridiculously uh, crazy. So um, it, the precision is incredible for, for the heart. Um, uh, so um, what we have been successful with is, is individual devices. It's a bit like, you know, you can make um, uh, a washing machine quite easily, which will wash your clothes. To make a robot to wash your clothes that looks like you and works like you, that hasn't worked at all. And so um, uh, it's, it's uh, breaking the things down into their individual parts. So the pacemakers, uh, the implantable pacemakers have become very... Um, uh, very uh, sort of small, very easy to implant. They can send back the details of what your heart is doing, so they can be adjusted for, by the team outside your body. You know, and you can send back your um, the data every night through a box, so they know what's going on. Um, they there's uh, ones that c- that can resynchronize the different parts of your heart if they've been damaged. Uh, they can give you a, a shock. Uh, like a defibrillator shock, an implantable cardio defibrillator. And so if they feel that your heart's gone into a dangerous rhythm, they will shock you out of it, which is, which is, feels just like being defibrillated, a big thump in your heart. Um, and, um, one thing that they have been able to do is, uh, a ventricular assist device. So this means your heart's intact, uh, but what they've done is put a tube into the lower part of your heart. And then a pump pumps this uh, into the aorta coming out of your heart. So it's going the same way as the blood coming out of your heart, but it gives it a boost. So you've, you've got more cu- blood coming out of your heart because of this. Uh, and that's gone from being a pump to being a, like, a, like a sort of impeller screw device and things like that. So it's, it's got better and better. They still have a lot of problems with clotting and infection because they, they the mechanical 
the load that you need to do the 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 battery you can't really have an implantable battery you have to have a one you carry over with you and so you have to have lines that come out through your skin that's always a source of infection um so so but they people have been living on those for for more than 10 years they they really were supposed to be a replace just a temporary thing while people waited for transplants but because the number of transplants are very low compared to the number of people who need a transplant, then people have ended up living on these for, for quite some time. And this leads us nicely to my next question that how are we progressing with the procedures and processes of transplant, heart transplant? Um, the, uh, the the sort of mechanics of the heart transplant uh, um, have, have um, improved, but uh, but mainly it's the immunosuppression um, so uh, the um, initially the, there's a very first a very rapid rejection of, of, of any kind of, uh, of foreign heart and then there's a rather slower kind of late rejection this is why I was saying with the IPS the, the, the pluripotent stem cells on the engineered heart tissue the fact that it comes from you and you don't have to have immunosuppressive drugs is, is a huge benefit because immunosuppressive drugs are not very Good. They they stop you. You know they they reduce your uh, you know uh, sort of resistance to infection for a start. So it's not great having them, but it does help to stop that rejection. Uh, then um, the care of the donor hearts uh, has improved. So first the retrieval processes have become very slick. You know in Europe they can be retrieved from all over Europe and within six hours got to the person. But um, also they've now put them so they have blood, uh, sort of blood flowing through them in, in a warmed chamber so that they can uh, last longer as they get to the patient. And also sometimes uh, they recover a bit because if you've if you've died from something which has had a big rush of adrenaline, you can get a kind of Takotsubu-like syndrome in those hearts, and that will recover uh, after that. So the quality of those hearts arriving is better. Of course, then we're getting fewer hearts because of the greater safety things like seat belts and things. So um, uh, you know, there's you, of course you you would want the safety things better. You don't that's that has to be. The the the, uh, the the main thrust, but um, uh, we're also retrieving hearts from patients we might not have retrieved them from before. People who've got diabetes or uh, something like that, or maybe even been smokers, and, and and trying to improve them and and use them as well in those. But it's still a huge mismatch. So we we had in the UK about two thousand transplants uh, uh, in an average year. I think the COVID interfered with that a bit. But then there are 900,000 people living with heart failure. So, you know, the mismatch is, is huge there. And uh, just uh, again, to touch upon a, a romantic uh, view, maybe a poetic view that if you end up receiving a broken heart, so some of the baggage will be carried by that heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I have actually been asked, and there are, are anecdotal evidence things where people say when they've had the heart, they take on some of the characteristics of the donor. Again, I'm going to switch into straightforward science mode here. I think basically that the fact that you've got a healthy heart, you're, you're, if you've had heart failure, you'd have been very sick. And to go from very sick to practically normal in a, in a in a few weeks or a month 
um, you're going to feel like a different person. So, I, I, you know, and I think um, even if there was some some aspect of the heart which had a memory, the, the difference between a, a failing heart and a new donor heart is so much more than, than that that I, I, I'm really not I'm not really not buying that one. <laughs> uh, Sean, we are discussing your book, The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book and it is very well written, very well organized. However, is there anything else that you suggest we should discuss uh, before we close this discussion? Um, uh, I, I just want to have a plug for the British Heart Foundation, which who's funded about half the research in the, in the country, heart heart research in the country for many years, and and they have had a uh, they've managed to raise enough money to give thirty million pounds to uh, a particular group led by some people in Oxford, but also international, and they are thinking about genetic manipulation of the heart so trying there's there's uh, many people walking around like at the i was mentioning healthy people who have a mutation but don't yet know it um and they are trying to um give uh, have this big again moonshot type of thing to try and get that gene therapy uh, uh and gene editing uh in, into the clinic so that's going to be a big new thing and just a follow-up question on this that uh, Overall, uh, you support research in that area because uh, I think that we will hugely benefit if we gain these abilities. Absolutely, and um, it's it's going to be some some years. I mean, I did a, a a small gene therapy trial. I was involved in that myself as a PI, but um, the heart uh, was very very difficult to get the gene vector into. We used a, a, a bit like the viruses they've been using for the COVID, adenoviruses, um, and adeno-associated viruses was, slight, just slightly a cousin of that one. And um, we, we tried that and it worked very, very well uh, in pig hearts, but it really didn't work. It, we really couldn't get enough in in, in human hearts. So, and, and there's lots and lots of complications about using those kind of things. So it's a, it's a it's a big it's a big challenge. But I I think we're just about ready to get there. Professor Sean Harding, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. A, a pleasure for me too. Thank you very much. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.